0: So they can go on out. The rest of us, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. It is a brief psalm. It is all of three verses long. Three verses. But they are significant as we think through what it means to, to live in unity. What are the blessings of unity? What does it mean for us to be the people of God And how does God just pour forth grace upon grace upon us? So, Psalm 133, you've already sung it, so let's read it one more time. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I'm so glad I did not forget that little tagline at the end. I thought for sure I would. So, as we jump into Psalm 133, let me uh, give you a, a little bit of understanding about it. It is a song of ascent. Jerusalem is a mountain city, um, and, the, and the fortress of David is going to be high up on the mountain, and so people are going to rise up. So when it says a song of ascents, there were three times in the uh, year where Israelites would go up to Jerusalem. Those three times are for Passover, the festival of weeks, then also the festival, festival of um, tabernacles or booths or whatever you might call it, maybe tents. And so those three times, Israelites would actually gather together, and they would do something known as a road trip. This is an ancient road trip, and they would go from the low places to the high places. Now, I think this is a fitting song because, um, now this is um, extra biblical, so I'm just going to throw it out there, all right? I think Abigail, one of David's uh, wives, probably was like, hey, can you write a song about kids getting along on a long road trip? (laughs) Or kids getting along on the way to worship. Um, How many of you and you don't have to raise your hand necessarily, but have a problem sometimes that it seems like there's contentiousness or there's intense fellowship in the midst of the uh, departure and arrival or on the way to church. It seems like there's tension between husbands and wives and children and everybody else uh, on the way. And, and so we read this as a song of ascents. And the song of ascents were the songs that we would be singing on this road trip. So you would start uh, back in, you know, probably, uh, I think it's 120, and you would sing those songs as you're riding up uh, with your family, as you were with your family going up. So, I mean, some of you have like your favorite playlist. This is sort of the the playlist or the Spotify list for those three times of festivals in the Israelite year. They'll be singing these songs throughout, okay? Now, quick question. Uh, How many of you people uh, are people who love the journey in the midst of a a road trip. Who loves the journey? Anybody? Okay, I don't want to travel with any of you. (laughs) I'm a total destination guy. You know, like I want to get there. I'm like calculating like how fast I'm going to get there, what miles per hour. This is what we got going on. You know, like we, we try to time our stops where it's like a bathroom, gas, everything. You know, sometimes we'll feed our children salt tablets so they can't, you know, I mean, all of those kind of things. We're trying to work it out. So, you know, we're, we're destination. So this is the destination of where we're going. We're going to look at um, Psalm 133 and, and see these things. So what is it like? So first of all, it's a song of sense, and it's talking about Christian unity. In verse one, it says, behold. And, and, and behold there sort of means we don't see this very much. Behold. And when we do see it, it is a magnificent thing in the midst of our families, in the midst of our community. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good and pleasant it is now, the idea there is this idea of goodness what it, now goodness is an attribute of God. How good, and so the, the goodness of god it 's defined i 'm thinking i 'm quoting Ligonier here it sees it, the goodness of God is this it means that the Lord is not evil and that he does not love sin and indeed cannot even be tempted with evil. It is synonymous with some aspects of what we typically call divine holiness which refers both to God's being set apart from everything else and to his moral character. So essentially, when it's good, we know that it is right. There's nothing evil in the midst of it. So it is good. Now, the idea of pleasantness is this idea of of delight. You know, that there's something that is sort of sweet to the taste. There's a, a, a delighting in this. And what we find is in the very first verse, it says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Well, there are some things... There are some things that are good, but they are not pleasant, right? We get that. Good for us, but not pleasant. Let me give you an example. Um, In Romans chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In that reference, it's talking about our sufferings. Our sufferings in the midst of that are good for us because they produce endurance and character and hope. But they are not pleasant, right? Make no mistake, our sufferings are not pleasant or delightful. In another verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says this about trials. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's this aspect of trials that bring about the testing of our faith, which then it is tested by fire, but it's found to be firm and and secure and leading us to worship. And so there's this sense in which our trials and our suffering are good because they produce in us character and hope, but they are not pleasant. Now, there's some things, because of the illusion of sin, that we actually think the, the illusion of pleasantness, but they are not good, certainly, right? So things that are seemingly pleasant, but not good, okay? For example, addiction. Addiction seems pleasant to the one who is wrapped up in it, but it is not good. If someone says, if I don't get this, then I cannot be happy, or if someone is pursuing addiction because they're trying to numb oneself to the pain of life. Another thing that is, You know, seemingly pleasant, but not good. How about adultery? You're breaking of covenant bonds. It destroys families. It brings about doubt within generations about what love really is. It destroys relationship. Or how about this one? How about something that is seemingly pleasant? And this one, this one's a, you got to use your imagination on this one a little bit. How about anger? Sometimes we actually think that holding on to our anger Holding on to bitterness um, will soothe us rather than recognizing that it actually is devouring us the closer we hold it to our hearts. Now, those things are seemingly pleasant, but they are not good. But look at what Again, Psalm 133 verse 1 says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers, and this is not just brothers, but brothers and sisters, we're talking about the family of God here, when, how, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And, and, and think about this. you know, if, if it's not only going in the same car is a challenge sometimes on a road trip, um, especially thinking about this when we're going to church, or we're going to worship, and we're going to a festival, and we're going to be surrounded by our family members. Anybody here have a heightened sense of anxiousness or anxiety every Thanksgiving and Christmas because there might be some conflict with people in your family? Like, you're, you're concerned about that? Or you're concerned about what might be said But again, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And that that unity is speaking about a unity of worship, a unity of purpose, thinking about God's glory alone rather than the glory of man, thinking about being um, in, in the same pathway of grace that God calls us to be, obeying God's laws, loving what he loves and hating what he hates. That's what unity is there and there 's two similes, and these two similes in, in verses two and three give us some instruction, give us some understanding. and in verse two, it says this, and we sang this, and i 'm sure you probably haven 't I 'd never sung it till, you know, not re- till recently uh, about the oil on the head and the running down of the beard on the beard of Aaron. It is like so this simile, this unity, this good and pleasant thing, this unity, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron. Running down on the collar of his robe. Now, the idea there is that there's actually an anointing that is done from God uh, upon this high priest Aaron, right? So, th- this is what we see in Exodus chapter 30. We see that oil, this special oil, that was a mixture of myrrh, cinnamon, canai, and, and cassia, and in Exodus chapter 30, is poured upon Aaron. This oil is put upon Aaron, and it's not just a little bit of oil, right? Like, it's a lot of oil. And so this oil hits him in the head, and it begins to run down, and it not just anoints his head, but rather it flows all the way down to his collar, to his robes, and all the way down to the floor. And there's this this aspect of this overflowing anointing that comes from the Father, because the anointing of, of Aaron is from God. And so, this, this unity that is uh, used here, uh, the Christian unity, is said to be from God, a blessing from God that comes from God. And not only does it hit us, it overwhelms us at times. But it, it, there's also this idea that it goes from the greater to the lesser. So, this, this idea that the, the unity that occurs when, when you have a church and you have unity at the top, that the people in the, uh, who are just beginning to go to the church, there's a blessing that occurs when there's unity and there's love in the midst of the body of Christ. And we see this, that it goes from God down to the high priest and then the high priest. And again, this is a a fragrant anointing oil. So not everybody that came in contact with the high priest was going to get uh, a whiff of the high priest and it was going to be glorious to their senses. And so there's this, this benefit that occurs with the people of God, when the leaders in the midst of the people of God are are unified. And it goes sort of from the greater to the lesser. We also see this in the second simile. It says in verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon. Now, Hermon, Mount Hermon, was the highest mountain in Israel. And it was located several hundred miles north of Jerusalem. And it was a place where it was snow-capped. And so you're in a desert region, Um, and I can't remember the exact mountain, but I remember being in Arizona, and my wife and I, Katie and I, were in Flagstaff in June, Uh, and we were in Flagstaff in June, and in Arizona, the big mountain there still has snow on it. Like, it's incredible that, you know, at 8,500 feet above sea level, but in Arizona, in northern Arizona, there's still snow on this mountain. And in a similar fashion, the snow will melt from Mount Hermon, and it will flow down, and the, melt, the melting snow, the snow-covered mountains, uh, it will seep into the rocks and the channels and the pores, and it will feed springs at the base of the mountain, which form streams and rivers, and these merge to become the Jordan River, which benefits Jerusalem. And so in the midst of a desert region, in the midst of this family road trip, you would see Mount Hermon off in the distance, and you would know that that is a place of great growth. And that Jerusalem would actually benefit. The people of God would benefit. And there's this idea that the psalmist is giving, that David is giving us, that from the heights to all the way down through the valley, that, the, that this idea of unity is a blessing from the greater to the lesser. So in a family, for example, when there is unity with the mother and the father, the children are blessed. When moms and dads are getting along well, children are blessed in the midst of that family. Now, in the church, we already mentioned that. When the, when the elders are getting along, it's a blessing to the church as well. How about this one? The, the, the other, um, um, uh, how about, <laughs> this is funny. Think about this. Can you imagine if we didn't have partisanship in politics? Can you imagine how good that would be for everybody who lives here? How, here's, here's an example. Do you know what passed in the Senate with a unanimous vote recently? Daylight savings time. (laughs) To get rid or or to always have daylight savings time. I think it's like the first unanimous vote that we've had in a long time. And I hope that we all benefit from just being on daylight savings time all year long, you know, in the future. Especially because people won't get all mixed up at church, right? (laughs) So even from the Senate... The people of God will be blessed because everybody should be here on time and it will be a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Now, from the greater to the lesser, we see the blessing of that, the the blessing that occurs. It is anointing from God. It is unity that flows from the greater to the lesser. And it is also this sense in which unity is a foretaste of heaven, Because in verse 3, after it talks about this oil running down on the beard of Aaron and and the dew of Hermon, it talks about, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And brothers and sisters, there will be a time in heaven where there will be no more conflict, and we will all be with our brothers and sisters in glory, worshiping, and there'll be no sin. And there'll be no, you know, I mean, there'll be no hope, (laughs) there'll be no faith, but there will be great love. And in the midst of that love, there will be great unity that occurs within the body of Christ. I mean, that's the beauty that we see. Now, the blessings that we see from this unity, we see that it is good, we see that it is pleasant, we see this anointing from God upon, upon the people of God. We see this dew, which, which runs from the greater to the lesser, which brings growth. So this idea of unity within the body of Christ, you know, is, is good, pleasant. It is anointing so that we can go forth. It causes growth. God actually blesses it. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. And then finally, it's this idea of eternal life, and it's a foretaste of heaven. Those are all the blessings of unity within the body of Christ. But Let me ask you this. <laughs> Have you ever seen um, or have you ever been hurt by somebody in the church? Have you ever been disappointed by somebody within the family of God? You see, the, the struggle is that this side of heaven, there's going to be friction and there's going to be conflict. And we could call it a, a whole list of things. I mean, we could call it... Um, you know, anger or acrimony or annoyance or displeasure or enmity or fury or indignation or outrage or resentment or temper. But this side of glory, um, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be friction within the family of God. So, what do we do with that? What do we do in the midst of now? <laughs> This is my first week, all right? So I am not pointing to anything in particular at all. This is just Psalm 133, okay? Like, I, I, I preached this uh, uh, a while ago, and one of my uh, elders came up to me, and then after preaching this, he goes, what's wrong? What happened? Like, what happened that I'm not aware of? And I'm like, nothing, Dale, it's okay. He goes, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, it's just Psalm 133, and this is what we're working through. But the reality is that like, if we live um, in the family of God together, there will be some friction at times. And there will be times where the people of God hurt you and disappoint you greatly. And what happens in the midst of that is that we have such high standards for the people of God that when they disappoint us, we're, we're devastated at times. Let, let, me, let me give you um. Uh, there's a guy named Mike Minter who's a pastor in, in uh, Virginia, and he actually um, talks about the anatomy of a conflict. And here's what he says, and I thought this was beautiful as it outlines what happens in the midst of conflicts in the church, okay? He said there are 14 things, you don't have to take notes on these, 14 things that occurs. First, an offense occurs within the church. It's going to happen, right? Hey, by the way, yeah, I'm new, but at some point I'm going to offend you, I'm going to let you down, just so you know, right? I think that's going to happen. It's going... I probably, It might have already happened, okay? And I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry. So, number one, an offense occurs. Two, a biased view of the offense is shared with friends. So rather than going to the person, you go to your friends and you share a biased view of the offense with your friends. Three, your friends take up the offense in the midst of the church. Four, sides begin to form in the church. Five, Suspicion on both sides develops. Six, each side looks for evidence to confirm their suspicion, and you can be sure they will find it. Seven, exaggerated statements are made. Number eight, in the heat of conflict, those involved hear things that were never said and say things they wish they had never said. Number nine, Third parties, no matter how well intentioned, can never accurately transfer information from one offended party to the other offended party. Number 10, past offenses unrelated to the original offense surface. Number 11, integrity is challenged. 12, people call each other liars. 13, Those who try to solve the problem, i.e. church leadership and elders, are blamed for not following the proper procedure and become the new focus. The original problem is disregarded, but now it's the process and the leaders in the midst of the process who are now being run over by the bus of public opinion, or one side versus the other side. Fourteen, many are hurt. Fourteen steps let me give you three observations on that list. First, that is pretty much spot on with what I've observed in a number of churches, and I wish it weren't the truth. Second, it seems that once you get to step five, which is suspicion builds on both sides, it's pretty hard to f- pull out of the nosedive. It's really hard. And then third, conflict in the church makes me long for Jesus to come back sooner. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that list? Well, let me give you something what I call um, some gospel dynamics with regard to that. How do we put this into practice tangibly in the midst of our lives? So whether or not it's in the church, whether or not it's husbands and wives in your family, you know, uh, where it is, let, let, me, let me give some, 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 some help. Um, there's a book um, that's called Good and Angry by a guy named David Pallison. It's a great book. As a matter of fact, this will be the book that we use as our summer reading book. So we're going to encourage the whole church to read this book called Good and Angry. Let me read for you all of chapter 2, just because I love it so much. Chapter 2, here it is. Um, It says, you know, do you have an anger problem? That's that's the name of the chapter. And the um, whole chapter says, yes. (laughs) Then it just moves on. I memorized that one. Um, I fairly really good about myself uh, that I was able to do that. So, so here's what, in the midst of conflict and forgiveness, here it is, as the people of God, as the family of God, we should be the people who are quick to forgive and to receive forgiveness. When we have a brother and sister who comes to us and asks for forgiveness, we should say, yes, please, I forgive you. Because, And why can we do that? Because we have been forgiven much. Like we have been so forgiven and redeemed and brought into the family of God by the Lord Jesus that we should just forgive everyone. And I know that you will be hurt by people that you are closest to. You know, I always have to, doing in the midst of premarital counseling, explain to young brides that this guy will hurt her deeply and that this woman will hurt this man deeply. And in the midst of engagement, they are, you know, rainbows, unicorns, and lollipops, and they don't have any idea how difficult marriage is. But what does it mean to forgive, and what does it mean to, to pursue forgiveness? Well, pallison does um, uh, something remarkable. And, and here's what he says first. He says, forgiveness comes in two forms. And I think this is really helpful. This— I, Matter of fact, I wish somebody had told me this. Um, he just wrote this book probably about three or four years ago, but I had never encountered this anywhere. And, and, and quite frankly, I was kind of angry that nobody had written about it. I'm just kidding. You know, I mean, I, you know, and that's why I was reading the book. Um, but he says, forgiveness comes in two different places. He says, first, and foundationally, you forgive another person before God, whether or not that person admits or even recognizes any wrong this is called attitudinal forgiveness. Listen to how Jesus speaks of the vertical dimension of forgiving another person from Mark 11. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespass. Now, in this Mark 11 passage, Jesus says to deal with whatever you have against anyone else. He doesn't even tell you to try to sort out what really happened or whether it was a real wrong or only a subjective feeling of offense. Conflicts can be impenetrably complex. Did you actually do something against me or did I misunderstand what you were doing or was I just being hypersensitive? Often it's hard to know what really happened because so much was happening in both parties. Trying to figure out the definitive explanation leads to more disagreement and outrage. Instead, Jesus simply says that if you have anything against anyone, forgive. That's the vertical. Another place in Scripture that he deals with this. He says this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now in, um, he goes on to say, well, I'll just keep reading it, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Notice we don't usually say the last part when we say the Lord's Prayer. In the Matthew 6 passage, Jesus emphasizes dealing with real wrongs. Our debtors are people who owe us. The mercy of God, our Father in heaven, is front and center in helping us. In both cases, you are talking with God, okay? In, in both of those places, in, Ma- in Mark 11 and Matthew 6, you are talking with God. This is attitudinal, this is vertical. You are not talking to the person who wronged you. That person is not a part of this conversation. You stand alone before God your Father dealing with your own attitudes. This vertical aspect of forgiveness deals with our attitudes and its purpose is to change you, not to deal with the other person. It prepares you so you will go to the other person already willing to be merciful. You are no longer holding the grudge, building up bitterness on the defensive or on the offensive. Now the second part. The second aspect of forgiveness, if the first one is um, you know, vertical, the second one is called transacted forgiveness. And this is the horizontal. Again, listen to how Jesus describes it. He says in Luke chapter 17, if your brother sins, bring it up with him directly. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, um, Peter came up to Jesus And he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times from Matthew 18. Notice that in both of these passages, notice that here Jesus envisions a conversation with the other person. You bring it up constructively, the other person asks to be forgiven. The interpersonal interaction is able to be both candid and full of mercy. Because the attitudinal forgiveness has already happened, it is also worth noticing that in both cases, cases, Jesus chooses to portray the other person as a repeat offender. They didn't do it just one time. They did it over and over and over again. He or she keeps doing it even after admitting it's wrong. That's realism. That's why we need patience. That's why we continually are driven back to our Father to seek forgiveness ourselves and to, again, work out the attitudinal forgiveness. Now, the idea is this is that we go attitudinally, vertically first. Then we go horizontally, transactionally. I will say that that alone is so good for marriages as well. Because I think early on, I just knew in the back of my head that I was going to have to, you know, the rare times that I would upset Katie. I'm just kidding. You know, like the many times I would have said, Katie, and then we would have to reconcile, you know, what was happening was I was not doing it vertically before I would go to horizontally. And here's what happens. When you pursue somebody else before you have dealt with it yourself, then you are trying to win the argument. You are trying to justify what happened. You are trying to uh, make sure that there is clarity. And rather than Uh, extending forgiveness through mercy, you're trying to be right. Anybody struggle with being right? Like, I like being right, right? And there was was a joke I heard. It was a a, a guy, a couple comes into a pastor's office, and he said, pastor, we are having some serious conflicts, and we uh, made a, a vow to ourselves in the midst of our marriage that we would never go to bed angry. And the pastor said, well, what's the problem? He says, I haven't slept in three months. You know, that's, that's, you know but, but we need to work attitudinally before we ever work transactionally because we want the goal. The goal is to be reconciled, right? The goal is to be reconciled. So are we supposed to go to our brother? Yes. Are we supposed to forgive before we ever go to our brother? Yes. I will say um, one, of, one of the great tragedies for me uh, in the midst of pastoral work is seeing people who are deeply in love with Jesus in deep conflict with one another. And there was a, a time um, in a church that I served uh, that, you know, two good friends, you know, basically went in two different pathways. Both were officers in the church um, and their families, the, the wives were not getting along because their daughters were not getting along. And and, and this whole these people were my friends. We were all in a small group together. We had done life together. There was a deep affection for one another. And I thought, you know, all I have to do is, is get these people in the same room. If I can just get these people in the same room, then, then, then the forgiveness of God will just be lavished upon them and we can walk out in unity. And what I had underestimated was the idea of attitudinal forgiveness and the idea of vertical forgiveness because I rushed to do reconciliation through a horizontal relationship. And I mean, it just blew up. I mean, I, I, I welcome these, these friends into my office. And, and, and I kid you not, one of the, the spouses would not even look at the other sp- couple at all. Matter of fact, arms were folded. By the way, this is not an open, teachable posture. <laughs> even more so when you turn your back upon someone. And that's what it was. And from the moment I saw that, I said, this is not going to end well. And then what happened was, um, in the midst of me trying to reconcile this conflict, which was between young girls that happened at an event outside of church that I don't have jurisdiction over, but it bled over into the family relations, I'm like, I, I, I was just dumbfounded as to how this could happen. And then in the midst of it, the family that left said, you didn't do the right thing, George. So they began to blame me in the midst of the process and the leadership rather than dealing with the issue. And I lost a friend over it. And there's so so much sadness there. If we do this correctly, I mean, there's still going to be pain. There's still going to be hurt. There's still going to be issues. But I think... Three issues about forgiveness that this perspective will help us with. And again, this is coming right from Paulson's book. First, how do we do this? First, what if the other person won't hear you out? He or she gets defensive and self-righteous, counterattacking when you are seeking to be constructive. Again, we are driven back to our Father and to forgive attitudinally. This vertical dimension of forgiveness must always happen and it keeps your attitude in check. The horizontal dimension is a more uncertain and hazardous road, a goal to pursue, not a certainty. It takes two to reconcile, just like it takes two to make a war, but one can forgive even when the other is still at war. It is called loving your enemy. Secondly, What if the person who hurt you is off the scene, perhaps dead, perhaps long vanished out of your life, perhaps too hostile or even dangerous to approach? The attitudinal forgiveness means you can always deal with the things that poison your own heart. Transacted forgiveness and actual reconciliation are desirable, desirable fruits, but not always attainable. But by God's mercy, we can always establish our hearts in mercy. We are not left in limbo when there is no possibility of a reconciling interaction. You know, establish, I, love, I love what Pallison said. He says, the attitudinal approach to forgiveness allows us to establish our hearts in mercy, not in self-righteousness in mercy. And again, mercy is, you know, if if grace is unmerited favor, mercy, defined a little bit differently, is not getting what you do deserve, okay? And then thirdly, seeing that our forgiveness of others has two interconnected parts helps us navigate the opposite messages that often one hears in Christian circles. Some in the church teach, if you forgive from the heart, then you don't need to go to the person. Others teach, unless the other person asks for forgiveness, you don't need to forgive. Each focuses on a half-truth and draws a false conclusion. When you put together both halves of what Jesus did and taught on forgiveness, you get a coherent truth. So if you forgive from the heart, then you become able to go constructively to the other person when it is called for. Not to go would be not to love. But if the other person will not ask for forgiveness, or if it would not be wise to approach the other person, then transacted forgiveness and reconciliation can't take place. But you, you are reconciled with God and able to forgive. Not to forgive would be to harbor bitterness. Forgiveness Is a conscious choice formed through knowing God's mercy to you. I think that that's really, really helpful for us. I think that's really, really helpful in the midst of living in the midst of sinful people, whether it's in your home or within the church or within the community. Our hearts steeped in mercy and in forgiveness because we know. How much we have been forgiven. Because when Jesus died on the cross, all of our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Think about that. That you are called a child of God because of all that Christ has done for you. You are forgiven, and forgiveness has great. Power in the lives of believers. Let me illustrate that. Some of you are familiar with this story, but it's—I could hear this story weekly, and it would be good enough. So this is um, Corey Ten Boom. Many of you know this story, and I'm reading the story out of a book by Thaddeus Williams, confronting injustice without compromising the truth. Um, he says this, and he, he, he's quoting the Corrie Ten Boom story. Corrie Ten Boom, is she, um, she confronts the Nazi officer responsible for the death of her sister at the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Corrie Ten Boom, and she was in prison because they were hiding Jews in their, in their home, and her sister died. Her sister Betsy died, and here's the story. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly on forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there, but since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place, Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You see, Jesus tells us to forgive our enemies. And I love what she says, that I have never known God's love so intensely as I did when I forgave the guard. Would you um, pray with me? Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. And, Father, as we think about all that you have given us, I pray that we would be people marked out by forgiveness, that we would know what it is to forgive. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that if we think that bitterness feels good, Father, your love feels so much better and forgiveness feels so much better. So, Father, help us work within us great forgiveness and love. And, Father, we pray, Lord, that the unity within the body of Christ would be good and pleasant. Help us, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about forgiveness, the church gives us signs and seals of the covenant of grace. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and when he broke it, he said, this represents my body broken for you. And this cup As he poured juice or wine, he said, this cup, this is what it represents. It represents my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when we celebrate communion, what we're celebrating is our reconciliation with God the Father, that we are forgiven through the sacrifice, through the penal substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. And as you come forward, would you come forward and and just be thinking, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. And then as you leave, I want you to think about, is there anybody that I need to forgive? Again, this is not the table of grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but rather this is the table of the Lord. And he invites all those who trust and believe in Jesus as their Savior to come. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you're not sure you're a sinner, if you're not sure that you're forgiven, then I would say don't come forward, but rather accept Jesus this day and be welcomed into the family of God. Brothers and sisters, this is a foretaste of what heaven will be like. This will just wet our appetites for a day when sin will be no more. Again, the, the bread represents his body. The cup represents his blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. In Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22, it says, "Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and Jesus has shed all the blood necessary for us to be reconciled to the Father." And would you come?